1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 16. And I'm reading now the ESV, so it's just slightly different. <clears throat> now I commend you because you remembered me in everything and maintained the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if it were her head shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should not cut her hair short. But since it is a disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's go ahead and pray over our Bible study this morning. Lord, as this is a... Uh tough subject to teach on, Lord. Uh, perhaps at first glance, first read, uh, really feels uh, foreign to us uh, as uh, Americans. And so we just pray that as we uh, believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine and for instruction and correction and equipping, Lord, that you have something for us Today, In fact, Lord, just um, know that this is a very applicable passage for us in 2013 Prineville. Lord, as, uh, Lord I just get the sense this morning that uh, there's just some, some tired folks and some people that are just, uh, just trying, they're pressing in. Lord, I pray that your spirit would just take us, Lord, and give our minds, just open minds to hear you and to understand uh, Lord, as the worldview out there is so counter 1 Corinthians 11, Lord, we pray that you would um, let us bow the knee to the scriptures and that the scriptures would be the authority in everything concerning our life, concerning our worship, concerning our practices. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I could just tell you guys were excited as Kevin was reading that we're in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, you'll notice we're starting in verse 2, uh, and the reason is because uh, verse 1 fits in with the context of chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 33. And so uh, one thing about Calvary Chapel, if you're new here or if this is your first time, uh, we're a church that uh, for the most part, we just teach straight through the Bible. 
Uh, this is expository teaching. Uh, we just go verse by verse, cha- you know, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, uh, sometimes punctuation mark by punctuation mark. And we get the whole counsel of the word of God uh, by doing that. And occasionally the Lord will take us uh, somewhere else as the Holy Spirit leads. Uh, but for the most part, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And uh, this is our 16th week in the book. And so we are in uh, chapter 11, starting out in verse 2. A fun passage, all right? A fun passage to teach. And, and I don't say that sarcastically. I believe that God has something really for us uh, today. Uh, the title of today's message is Manhood and Womanhood, Rule and Roll, all right? Manhood and Womanhood, Rule and Roll. And, and we seek to have the text speak to us today. And uh, inductively, we bow the knee to the authority of the Word of God. We're going to see today uh, through the worship process that was happening in Corinth and the desire that the way the Lord wanted it to be, we see through head coverings here uh, an outward display for submission to authority as well as roles that we have among the genders. We move from chapter 10, uh, which discussed a Christian's liberties and their participation in questionable things to uh, chapter 11 through 14, dealing with disorder that was happening in public worship settings. Uh, If you're taking an outline and taking notes, we're going to start out in verse 2 this morning where we have commendation, commendation or a compliment. Uh, praise here. Praise for the Corinthians' diligence. Let's read it. Verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, uh, so far in Corinth, uh, in this letter to the church in Corinth, uh, we've, you know, there's been a lot of correction, there's been a lot of discipline, hasn't been a lot of fun, I'm sure, for Paul to write this. Uh, and so it's kind of nice to get to something that Paul's complimenting them on. Uh, it seems that the Corinthians had sent a letter to Paul with some questions regarding things that were taking place. And so he continues on addressing some of things in this chapter. Now, if you remember clear back in chapter 7, Paul says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. It seemed they had written Paul a letter where they had some specific issues, things that were going on in the church, and they needed Paul's input on it. In chapter 7, verse 8, Paul addresses the unmarried women and the widows. Uh, In verse 10, the married people. In verse 12, the rest of the people. In verse 25 of chapter 7, he addresses virgins. In chapter 8, verse 1, he's uh, things that are concerning food that had been sacrificed to idols, and we studied all of that in the past weeks. Uh, And so Paul is just working through things that they had concerns about, and they needed some answers. Uh, And despite all of the inconsistencies and all the way the Corinthians were erring, they were, uh, one nice thing, they were concerned about being well taught. Now, that might seem like that's all you need, right? It's just the desire to be well taught. 
Well, we could have all the truth in the world flooding our face and flooding our brain, but if we never act upon that truth in obedience to that truth, then we're like the person who James says, we, we see ourselves in a mirror and then we go away from the mirror and immediately forget what we'd just seen. All right, so here in a church where we preach the truth week after week after week, man, we don't want to get puffed up in that knowledge, but we want to surrender to that truth that we learned and live out lives of obedience to it. And so he says, I commend you that you're remembering me in all things and you keep the traditions, you might underline, just as I delivered them to you. Just as I delivered them to you. Now, Paul had spent time teaching the Corinthian church. In Acts chapter 18, we read of the, the beginning of this church. Uh, we read that he continued in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And then as you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you can jump down to verse 23. It's in, probably on the same page you're on. Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. And then he goes on to talk about communion. And then if you jump over a few pages to the right, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, Paul says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. You can just jump down to, the, to verse 3 of 15. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. So everything that Paul had taught the Corinthian church and he'd continually rehash it with them, they were central things. They were essential things. Man and his need for redemption, God and his glory in the process of redemption. So what were they remembering here in verse 2? The nature of the gospel, the significance of the Lord's Supper, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he says, I'm commending you that you're remembering these things, these traditions. Now, sometimes it's a poor thing to just observe the traditions of men, things that are just customs of men. But that's not what Paul was delivering. He was an apostle. And before there was scripture that was written down, there were verbal sayings. There were faithful sayings, as you'll see in the pastoral epistles. This is a faithful saying. This is a faithful saying. And so it's important that we stand fast, as 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says. Uh, he says, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught, whether by our word or our epistle. All right. Or second Timothy two, two, the things that you heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So it's very important in Christianity that we are observing the scriptures. We're observing the words of the apostles and we're observing them and keeping them. How did Paul put it in verse two here? Just as I delivered it to you. And right now on Wednesday nights, we have this thing called the Equip School of Ministry, where we have almost 30 people from our church who are being equipped to teach the word and expound the scriptures so that even if a woman is leading a core group ministry, she's able to expound the scriptures and teach other women uh, with the right context in mind of what, uh, what was written in the scriptures. Because we want to deliver to you all just as the apostles and just as the word delivered them to us. So 
Uh, and so that is what we're doing right now as we continue on through chapter 11, getting into some tough stuff. We're getting into some hard things. And one thing that happens is you go through the Bible verse by verse as you teach some of the unsavorable topics. All right. We don't, we're not just going to talk about heaven today. Woohoo, heaven. Let's, how about next week? How about heaven again? Let's talk about heaven. Are there rainbows and unicorns and lollipops? I sure hope so. All right. But we're going through, all right, and we're getting into a passage that uh, on the outset might seem like head coverings, big deal, you know, Uh, and I was even praying on Thursday night at the Pulse, like, Lord, help me to know what to teach as we get to chapter 11 here. Lord, what, what, what is your main intent in chapter 11? Is it head coverings? And someone in the prayer meeting is like, ha, 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 head coverings like that's Okay. It seems laughable, right? And so we'll see how laughable is it? We're going to be equipped to know what chapter 11 says. So compliment, the first thing in your outline or commendation. Secondly, we have concern and it begins in verse three. There's a concern that the Corinthians would know the current active truth. All right. They needed to know the current active truth. And this is something that is applicable for us today. You need to know the current active truth. And it's the same truth that we're going to see in this text today. Verse 3 says, But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The church in Corinth was seeing all kinds of disorder within the church services, including women behaving insubordinately during the services. Both their appearance and behavior were those which showed hearts that were not yielding to the ultimate authority of God the Father. He says, I want you to know, I want you to understand, I want you to realize. Now, when somebody says that, it means there is some important information coming. If someone stands up at the dinner table and gets his fork and dings on the glass and gets everybody's attention and he says, guys, I have something to tell you. I want you to know something. That's not a normal occasion, is it? That's something that everyone hushes up and listens because something important is coming. And that's what Paul does in this. He kind of goes, all right, I got something for you. Everybody listen up and pay attention. There's a vital, important, solemn truth that is coming up. And as the apostles spoke, they would speak the word of God. They would pass on this oral tradition. It would be written down and that writing would be considered sacred and would be saved and preserved for the people that would come afterward. So praise God we have 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because there was something that was needed to be known by the Corinthians. And what we have is a stressed pattern of authority that God has laid out for us, all right? When you read this passage, don't get hung up on head coverings and hair, all right? That's not the main thing here. What these verses are really about are authority, authority, authority. There's a comprehensive statement here in verse three. We need to understand verses two and three. There's something very important we need to know. It's to be passed down. It's concerning authority, 
And when you understand verses 2 and 3, the rest of the chapter, the rest of the section will be easy and palatable. But if you are not willing to come to terms with verse 3 especially, then the rest of the chapter is a problem. But not only that, you've got a bigger problem in verse 3, where we read once again, the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. The word head here is kephale, kephale, and it means chief or superior. It speaks of authority and role and function. What is not to be read here is value, okay, or worth. Don't read that into this text, all right? What we are reading is authority, all right? Here we have the head of man, Who is the authority over man? Christ. Now, Christ isn't just the head of believers, but of all mankind. Now, just the fact that men out there in the community don't understand that or refuse to accept that doesn't negate its truthfulness. All right. And we see in Philippians chapter two that one day every man, every woman is going to bow their knee to the authority, Jesus Christ, and it's going to be to the glory of God the Father. This principle of subordination and authority is one that pervades the entire universe and every man has as their head Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is teaching this based on the order that God laid out in creation itself. These are called creation principles. And we'll see that later on in verses eight and nine. These are principles that are written into the grain and experience of humanity. It's important to note as we see that the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man, that you don't read into this, the head of woman is her husband. All right. That's not what's being referenced here. Nowhere is marriage uh, discussed in this context. Okay. The significance here is not to a husband and his wife, but between men and women and their God. This is mind blowing people. This is completely counter culture today. This is completely opposite the worldview that we have pervading not only our culture, but our church and even ourselves, all right? We read verse three, and how many of you stiffened up, your eyes got wide, you started sweating for me because I'm going to be teaching it. You're like, oh gosh, we better start praying for Rory right now. You should. I would really appreciate that, all right? Because this is against everything the world says. It is revolutionary, even though it's 6,000 years old and stems from creation itself. The totality of relationships between men and women is laid out here. And it's the way God had planned it from the beginning of creation. So do not let your influence from the external world warp your view as you read verse 3. Don't come in with presupposed ideas or opinions or views. Lay those outside right now. Okay? Come and say, word of God, speak. Conform me to your standard, not vice versa. God is not to be conformed to our truths as they are relative. They are relative. 
The reason we belabor this is because if we go immediately into the application process in our Bible study without agreeing to the principle laid out in verse 3 to us, we're going to get in all kinds of trouble and chaos. And so it's important to note the issue of relationship between man and woman is placed in the context here of headship, headship of Christ over man and the headship of the father over the son. Now, what was happening in the original sense of Corinth, the context, the culture that we're reading about is that the Corinthian women were saying, I don't need to do any of the things that have been previously passed down to me by oral tradition. I can let my hair down and let it go free and I can do whatever I want because I am free in Christ. It's the same thing we've been studying in all of these Christian liberties for the last two chapters. But Paul would say, no. You can't act that way. And the reason is because of God's divine authority and roles that he's laid out in creation and in society and in home and in the church. The debatable issue of husband and wife and man and woman is set down before us today in the context of two undebatable issues, the relationship of Christ over man and of God the Father over God the Son. Now let's go back real quick and look at that word head one more time. Kephale is the word in Greek. Now, in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of commentaries that you'll read and a lot of pastors would teach that the word head here does not mean headship and it does not mean authority, but it means source, such as the beginning of a river has the source at the head waters, okay? And so many people would read into this the word source instead of head. Now, this would certainly bend the knee to the feminine culture around us, the feminism movement, and would allow us to believe the Bible and still kind of water down ourselves so that there's no controversy in the notion of headship over men over women or husbands over wives or leadership over the church being male leadership. Now, some of you are in school of ministry and you're learning already how to divide this up and to, how to do the study. How do we know if it's source and how do we know if it's head or authority? It's important. Don't let your brain go numb right now, okay? Let's do it. Let's do the work, okay? And we'll make it simple, okay? When Paul uses the word head as source, which he does in other epistles, in Colossians, at the beginning of Ephesians, he never uses the word source to establish role relationships between men and women. When he establishes role relationships between men and women, he uses the word head, which expresses authority or those that possess authority. And your minds hopefully would go to like Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 27 in the dealings of a husband and a wife and a wife to her husband. And even if we didn't already know that, let's do a quick exercise. Are you ready to exercise a little bit? Exercise your brains? Let's just paraphrase this verse and take out the word head and put in the word source, okay? Or beginning, okay? Okay, but I want you to know that the source of every man is Christ, 
The source of woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. Or the beginning of Christ is God. Now, halfway through that verse, it seemed okay, okay, okay. But when you get to that, the beginning of Christ is God, you run into a problem and you get into all kinds of theological gymnastics. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying that Christ was physically created from a piece taken out of God, like Eve was formed from Adam's rib? Is that what Paul is saying here? Obviously not, if you know the Bible. Does he mean to say that Christ didn't exist before he was sourced out of the Godhead? Clearly not. Does he mean in any sense that the Father was the creator of the Son? If you know the Bible, you know that that would not be truth. For all of the Bible declares that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, are co-equals, co-eternal, one essence, distinguishable by their unique characteristics of their role or authority within the Trinity. So, when you translate head here, not as source or beginning, but as authority over, it's perfectly straightforward for us. I want you to know that the authority of every man is Christ. He has the authority over all men. In the home, he's the authority over all husbands. In the church, he's the authority over all the shepherds. And they are to model their behavior after his headship and authority. Whether we like it or not, whether it offends us or not, that's not the issue. The issue is, what is the Bible saying? And whatever it's saying, I bow the knee to it. Feel free to go home, get into a Greek lexicon, start looking, start Bible studying, be as a Berean, search if this is truth, and come back to me, all right? But I believe that this passage is speaking of authority that's been laid out in creation. The head of woman is man, we read. Thayer's Greek lexicon says that this is woman. This is a woman of any age, whether she's a virgin or married or a widow, so the head of a woman of any age, whether she's a virgin or she's married or she's a widow, the head or the authority, the role of authority is man. We see in Genesis 3.16, after the curse, that the desire for the wife would be for her husband, but he would rule over her and not in a good way. That's not like a pat on Adam's back. It would actually be something that he would abuse uh, over the course of history. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body. Now you might be thinking, Rory, you're saying stuff that's dealings with husbands and wives. It's true, I am. But we also see in the scriptures, like in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that a woman was to learn in silence with all submission. Paul did not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll be there in a couple weeks. 
in verses 34 through 35, we have a whole nother subject that we're not even going to attempt to tackle today, but it says that the women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Okay. Uh, That's going to be a big issue today as we're going to see women praying and prophesying in public here in chapter 11. Can we just not go there today? Can we be a little bit patient for the weeks to come so that we can tackle one issue at a time? I'd sure appreciate it because frankly, I'm almost out of time as it is uh, today. So, but we will get there. Keep the questions. Feel free to write out every question that you think of today as we go through. But the main idea was that women to speak in public would have been an act of independence as if they were not subject to their husbands, okay? Now, I want to note the the vocabulary and the grammar very quickly. I hate vocab and grammar as much as 90% of you here, so not going to bore you with it. But I want you to know that here in verse 3, it's written down in the present active indicative tense. That might be Greek to you as much as it is to me, but what it means is this is still happening with no intent of it ever be completed. That's essentially what the the parsing of the verb is here, okay? Because, and the reason that's important is how many would say that was for back then, that was for in Corinth, that was for that specific place in verse 3, and what Paul would say is no, no. That's not the case with what verse three is telling us in the role and the gender roles that have been given by the creator. It's present active indicative. It's still really happening today. And it's something that we need to know as Paul dings the glass at the dinner table and says, you need to know this. A movement of society or culture cannot negate how God has created things from the beginning, okay? And we're talking about here stuff that's been from the beginning. It had been in place for 4,000 years by the time Paul had written this, and now 2,000 years later, nothing has changed concerning verse 3, okay? Now, real quick, many take verses 3 through 10 to serve as some kind of browbeating passage for male domination. All right. That is not my intent here at all today. I'm going to great lengths to be very careful to not even insinuate that we're not talking male chauvinism here. We're not talking men being worth more or more valuable or more special than women. We are talking about created function, created role and created authority. Okay, just as those who rule over us in the government, they are not better than us by any means. They just have a different role. Or your doctor who has authority over your body and speaks into your life things to do, uh, he's not better than you. He just has a role over your life. All right, same with church leadership. All right, same with husbands and wives. Now, the head of Christ is God, and that's what proves my point that we're not talking value here or worth, because Jesus himself had an authority, all right? Jesus is is leading by example by saying, just as I submitted to the will of the Father, as John says, 
My father is greater than I, at the end of the verse, my father is greater than I in authority. Or do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was sweating great drops of blood and he said, please let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. All right. I defer to the authority of the father. While Jesus was equal with the Father and the Spirit in essence and in being, he has placed himself willingly in a role of subjugation, a role of submission, which was a God-intended role within the Trinity itself. Jesus Christ is no second-class person, amen? If you can figure out my stutter there. Jesus Christ is no second-class person, The fact that he surrendered to the will of the Father did not make him any less valuable or worthy or essential in his nature or in his being. And in the same way, I stress this, gals especially, actually husbands, maybe you need a mind change as well. In the same way, for a woman to submit to the leadership of men in society or husband in the home or pastors who are men in the church never and in no way renders them as second-class citizens or inferior in any level. But their subjugation, if I could use a word very tenderly, is an indication of their willingness to acknowledge that God is almighty God. He is creator. He is majesty. He is sovereign in all of his dealings. And whatever he says goes because he is the Lord. He's the Lord. He's the boss man. And being filled with the Spirit as a Christian will always show itself by evidences of submission to one another in love. Before Paul ever talks about marriage and those roles in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he asks, Hypothetically or rhetorically, I should say, how do you know if someone is filled with the Spirit? Well, verse 19 of Ephesians 5 says, they're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Are you doing that to other Christians? It's a a fruit of being filled with the Spirit. They're singing and making melody in their hearts to the Lord. Is that happening in your life? They're giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. Are you thankful? In fact, Romans chapter 1 says a depraved man or the mark of depravity is they are unthankful individuals. And then finally, verse 21, they submit to one another in the fear of God. Okay, now we get into husbands and wives where it says wives submit to your husbands. And actually in the original, the word submit isn't there. And so you gather they mean submit by the context. Wives Be filled with the Spirit of God. As you're filled with the Spirit, submit to your husbands. Okay? So, hey, Dan. Good to see you, buddy. Love you. Back from Arizona. Okay, so, we have this concern that Paul had that there's right submission to the right created authorities in our lives. Now, the question comes up now, what about this whole cultural custom that we've come across so far in chapter 11 of this head covering, all right? You guys ready to dig into that? 
Woohoo! Nobody? Okay. I am. <laughs> Got to spend about 14 hours digging into this this week. Okay. Three questions, okay? My kids are into this stage where they've just got so much to ask me, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have time to... Okay, and so they come up, and little Laney and little Russell. Okay, Dad, two questions, okay? And then they go on for like five questions, all right? So, three questions, okay? Three questions. What is the covering that Paul's talking about? Why is Paul concerned with the covering? And what does the covering have to do with us today, okay? Verse four. Is it hot in here? I had to wear the thermal thing today. I don't know what I was thinking. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Okay. Real quickly, what's the context of having to wear a covering? What, what are they doing? Just being anywhere? Grocery outlet. Where is your head covering? All right. Uh, what about, you know, serving in the children's ministry? Or what? Where, where? Where? Just simply. Church. Does it say church there? Praying and prophesying. All right. Praying or prophesying. All right. So, first of all, what's the covering? Um... Some people, there's opinions, we don't have time today, okay? I could go on for another hour and a half about what they think. But A, or one, whatever, <laughs> that it's hair. That hair is just the covering, nothing but the hair, all right? There's some really good points for this. And a lot of, um, you know, denominations out there, the women will gather their hair up in like a crown on their head or a bun, and that's their head covering. And there's some good reasons for that, all right? Uh, there's some favorable points to that view, doesn't really matter. If you've got a big argument about it, we could work through those, okay? Uh, the second view of what this covering is, um, perhaps a, a shawl or a toga that's kind of like partially put up on the head just to kind of cover the head, okay? So uh, maybe a shawl. Um, what's clear is that the women should adorn themselves in a way that the men are not adoring themselves. Amen, right? We getting that? That's what's clear. Men, don't put a head covering on. Women, put a head covering on. What's not clear from the scripture is what exactly they were covering their head with, all right? Now, in the words of one of my favorite preachers, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, and we don't want to get into what's not plain today, okay? Why is Paul concerned with head coverings? Why are you guys concerned with head coverings today? That's what I've been wondering. Does it even matter today? The key is found in verse 3, okay? Head coverings, or the absence of head coverings, reflect the role of submission to the headship, okay? Remember, it's when there, she is, I should say, when she is praying or prophesying. When she's praying or prophesying. Now, it's not so much what's going on upon her head, as what's going on inside her head, all right? It's really the issue that we find today. She was making it clear by not wearing the shawl or the toga or by not having her hair in a bun and just letting it go freely and she's just saying, I'm just free and I'm gonna do whatever I want regardless of the order given to us in creation. She was making it clear that she understood God's design 
of authority and that she was going to either live under it or live without it. All right. Verse six tells us if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn, also be shorn. But if it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. Paul's kind of being sarcastic here because for a woman to shave her head back in the day, it was a, it was a disgrace. It was something that was associated with temple prostitution in Corinth. Or if you were a Jew, it was a very humiliating thing they would do to the women after they were captured and they were going to make them the wives of a Jewish male. They would shave her head and give her a month to mourn over her family. You might remember like in World War II in Holland, if any of the French or the Holland women would uh, sleep with the German soldiers, uh, the resistance would drag them out into the street and closely shave their hair so that they'd be bleeding. And it was a sign to the whole culture that she was a shameful woman, very similar to what we're reading about uh, today. Verse 7 tells us, A man indeed, for a man indeed, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. The word glory here speaks of the splendor and the amazing might. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, we read that he made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The context of the Imago Dei, men being created in the image of God, it actually extends to the creation of women as well. But we're talking about the original first uh, here today. Uh, in verse 8, for a man is not from woman... But a woman is from man. If you have an elementary understanding of the Bible and you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that Adam was first, right? And then God said it's not good that man should be alone. And so he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He opened up his side, took out a rib, fashioned the woman out of man while he had fashioned the man out of the dirt of the earth, the dust of the earth, okay? She came out of Adam's side, and she was called Isha because she was taken from Ish. She was woman because she was taken from man. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, when Paul speaks of the authority of the men in the church and the women to remain in silent, his argument is because Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay? Uh, verse 9, we continue on. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. You know your Genesis account, Genesis 2.18? The Lord says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. This is God's design. It's not vice versa. Now, this does not mean that men aren't to help vacuum the house or put the dishes away. That would go against the whole context of Scripture uh, and the very character of God who was a servant himself and actually created a helper to help us be servants and mirror and reflect the God in whose image we've been created. Okay, So it doesn't mean we're not to help and to serve. It's that primarily the role was designed for wife to be a helper to man. <clears throat> As you look at the entirety of scripture, both chauvinism and feminism are unbiblical nonsenses, okay? Either way, if you're an extremist on any side, you've erred and forsaken the scripture. Now, I want you to take note real quick that this order that God has created in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
was not based on the fall. Many biblical feminists will try to say that it was because of Genesis 3 that this role was laid out. That's not the case. Genesis chapter 2 was when it was created, and Genesis chapter 3 uh, was when the fall took place. So, issue number one so far, what's going on in your head? And the secondary issue is, what's going on on your head? Okay, what's going on in your head and what's going on on your head? It's an issue of authority in your heart. Okay, verse 10, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What did this head covering represent? A symbol of authority, couple different views, that it was a symbol of the authority of her husband that he had over her or upon her. And second view was actually, and it's a good view, Uh, that the woman is showing as she's praying or she's prophesying that she has been given authority by God over the rest of creation as well as she was created in the image of God, including authority over the angels who are present in worship services. Is that cool or what? All right. So the angels are present as we're worshiping and as the church is is, uh, worshiping God and uh, and is they have a a very submissive heart themselves to see a woman without a submissive heart would be a problem for the angels. Crazy theology, hate to skim over verse 10. It's been known as one of the most complex, hard verses of the New Testament uh, to understand. But I feel that the Lord would have us get through verse 16 today. You guys okay with that? Okay. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came for man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Remember, we aren't speaking of the value of the person or the gender here. We're speaking of the necessary roles and functions that the creator designated. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says, At the foot of the cross, in regards of salvation, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so John Calvin would say, So let us be tied together through these bonds of mutual service. As we have gone to great pains to avoid making this message sound like some sort of male domination sermon, uh, we also don't want to take the rest of this section and use it to set aside the instructions from verses 3 through 10 regarding uh, headship and authority, all right? So we want to avoid that with equal passion here as we move, as we move on to verse 16. Verse 13 says, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Remember, it says she's praying to God. Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Talk about a hairy issue. Okay. Thank you. While it would be shameful for a woman to be shaved or shorn, the reason here would be because her hair was given to her for a covering, for a mantle, for a veil, the word means. Is Paul saying here that human history has made the custom of making a distinction in the hair length between men and between women? Doesn't nature, Paul says, 
the essential elements of sexuality teach us the necessity of distinguishing between the sexes? Doesn't it teach you that in light of all of that, we need to be very careful about obscuring these differences that God has created and that are evident in the very nature of his created order? When you go to Romans chapter 1, verse 26, it says, because men had idolatry in their hearts and de-godded God, essentially, he says, for that reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. All right. And so Paul is referring to uh, how we are to act naturally because we've been created this way in our biblical manhood and womanhood. It is unnatural by God's very created order for women to be involved with, uh, to be involved as husbands and wives would be within their own same sex relationship. It's actually a vile passion we just read in Romans chapter 1. The same thing is to be uh, said of a male with a male in a homosexual relationship. We have these natural instincts within us. We have psychological perceptions that bear testimony to our masculinity and our femininity. These psychological perceptions and basic instincts express themselves in different cultures and in different ways, but they are true for all time and in every culture. For all time and in every culture. It is God's purpose that a man and a woman should become one flesh, never ever that a man and a man or a woman and a woman should become one flesh. It is God's purpose in all of time that as surely as God the Father rules over Christ and Christ rules over man, that woman is under the authority of man. And one of the ways that this psychological, natural affection will reveal itself is for women to have long hair and for men to have short hair. Okay, now, within the different cultures... There's a lot of differences on what is considered long hair or what is considered short hair. All right. What we want to look at, though, is the main things that are the plain things and the plain things that are the main things here. What Paul is essentially saying is, <clears throat> men, you are not supposed to look like a girl. Girls, you are not supposed to look like a man. You're not supposed to act like a girl, men. And women, you are not supposed to act like a man. You're not supposed to display before the church a rebellious attitude before your husband. And you are not to display before the church a chauvinistic attitude over your wife. And in a way that was expressed within the Corinthian context, had everything to do with what was being worn on the head, or whether their hair was in a bun, or whether it was covered with shawls. That covering indicated something. Verses 13 through 15, Paul declares that by wearing the head coverings, the women showed themselves to be keeping with their God-given differences between the sexes. All right, moving right along, nearly done. This cultural extent, the culture ex cultural extent, is this command for women to adorn their head coverings while praying or prophesying for us in 2013 Prineville, Oregon? To what extent... Is this passage limited by culture? We need to ask, is this practice, this situation, this command considered permanent and relevant for us today? 
Or is it to be considered temporary and cultural? Is it something that we see repeated and continuous, or is it revoked at some point? And maybe you already know the answer to that from what Kevin read this morning. Is it something that is a non-repeatable circumstance? Is it a non-theological subject? Is it from a culture that is partially similar to ours or not at all similar to ours? Well, we know that the principle is the same from 1 Corinthians 11, but the culture is different. And so Paul would say, if anyone seems to be contentious in verse 16, we have no such customs, nor do the churches of God. The whole head coverings, whether it's a hat or a bun, is not to be argued about. But the principle of subjection to authority and the diversities of, of uh, role and function between the genders, even though there's a quality of worth and value, that is to be upheld, and that is to continue to be taught. The principle is timeless. The distinctive natural element in us is timeless, but the cultural applications of head covering versus wearing a wedding ring versus you know having your husband sit by you in church, that may be different depending on the culture. Paul would say from this text, if your culture views certain hairstyles as distinctly male or distinctly female, as Christians, we ought to respect their gender association. We know that there is a way that lesbians wear their hair, not trying to stereotype, and certainly that's not a blanket statement, but we have all seen that, all right? That's a cultural thing, we know that. There's a way that homosexual men dress and carry themselves and behave, and we know that, okay? And so it's important to understand the text is saying, we know how a man that is a heterosexual carries himself Strive by the Spirit of God to carry yourself that way, and vice versa for the female. Where our culture that we live in today has blended agendas like ours does, you turn on TV, and all the time we're left to ask, was that even a woman or was that a man? Okay, Because we stand before the truth of our design, let's not make it questionable. If having earrings is a sign of femininity in our culture, then men should not wear earrings. If having a certain earring is okay, have a certain earring, all right? I remember Dan had long hair when he first moved here. It's getting a little long, buddy. No, I'm teasing, all right? Dan's my buddy. And Lainey's like, you know that man, the big guy, you know? She's like, three. He has long hair, and that's not good. And I go, no, honey, it's okay. It's okay. You know, Dan is a man. Dan, the man, homeboy rides a Harley, you know, like I'm not messing with Dan. There's no question in my mind. All right. Jeff Vigil, Aryan Jesus, we call him long hair guy represents for the men. Okay. But when we start whipping out the straighteners and the curling iron and we start primping and pressing and all that stuff and, you know, carrying our, all right, we've, we've crossed the line to make it questionable for our church and for our culture. Vice versa uh, for, the, for the women. In one study, it says there's little doubt that there is a direct link between femininity and the proper submission of women to men. Masculine women do not submit readily to men, and feminine men rarely, if ever, express adequate headship over women. We're going to have the worship team come back up. 
as we have seen today, the principle of role between the genders and rule between the genders is timeless. The natural instinct that God has placed in us for how our gender is to behave is timeless. The cultural expression of that is variable, okay? The price of ignoring this truth for wives that refuse to submit to their husband, for citizens that refuse to submit to the authority of the government, for children do not, who do not submit to the authority of their parents, for church members that do not submit to the authority of church leadership, for women that are behaving like men and forsaking their God-created roles, for men that are behaving like women and shirking their created duty to loving leadership, it all comes back to verse 3. Are they submitting to the headship that God has placed over them? And ultimately, that is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ as he humbly submitted himself to the will of the Father that we might be saved. If there's an issue with submission in your heart to any of the God-given authorities, it's the showing of a deeper symptom of a heart problem that you're not submissive to your Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the communion table today, we want to take all of our presupposed ideas and notions that we get off of CNN, Fox News, Oprah Winfrey, The View, whatever it might be, Bill O'Reilly, doesn't matter, left or right, they're all wrong if they don't bow the knee to the scripture. And we come today and we say, Lord, in your sovereign mastery, you gave me headship whether it's my husband, whether it's the men that you've placed over me, whether it's you, Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, the Bible tells us, and I bow my knee to you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.